Hi gang, I'm Hannibal, and this is Across the Table. This is the very first episode of my very first podcast, and first of all, thank you for listening. Thank you for your support. Thank you for all of those of you who encouraged me to get going on this particular project. I will. Uh, I have things to say, and uh, I hope uh, you'll, your feedback will be incoming as well. This is uh, an experiment for me, and I hope uh, that it'll get better in time, and I hope that you'll bear with me over the the rough patches of the beginning, but nevertheless. This is the fulfillment of a goal that I set for myself. Um, I opened a crowd-supporting Patreon just about two and a half weeks ago, and the very first goal I set for myself, uh, encouraged uh, and suggested by Lily Von Stupp, was to offer the uh, the chance of, after getting a certain number of patrons, to start a personal weekly podcast where I would vocally tell you what was on my mind, maybe kind of a stream of thought, stream of consciousness kind of thing, and tell you what's on my mind. And, and I'm going to, at least for the time being, believe that there's actually somebody out there listening and someone finds what I have to say interesting. Uh, I'd love to get your feedback on this. For right now, uh, if you have anything you'd like to say, those of you who are uh, patrons, send me a note via the, the patron page if you're on Facebook. You know what? Send me a message wherever you can. My email address is info at chrishannibal.com. C-H-R-I-S-H-A-N-N-I-B-A-L.com. And uh, if you have suggestions for topics, if you have suggestions for the show itself. If you just want to tell me what you think I'm doing wrong, I read the comments and uh, and I'll address them here, whatever you'd like to hear. In fact, that's how I suggested we start this off. First of all, for those of you who are maybe tuning in for the first time or maybe listening to this, who knows how long from when right now is, it is currently uh, July the 17th, 2017 is when I'm recording this. I expect fully to release it tomorrow to the patrons and then in two or three days over to iTunes and to the general public, and we'll see what happens. But today is a very special day. Today would have been, or in the eyes of the technicality, uh, is actually my 29th wedding anniversary. Uh, 29 years ago today, I... uh, I married my best friend, I married the love of my life, and we made a family together. And we stuck together, and we we encouraged each other, and we trusted each other for 27 years. And uh, sadly, it, it came to a close. And today is my anniversary, and it, uh, it's been an interesting day. It's been kind of tough. I kept my hands busy with uh, with work, with preparing for this, with doing some writing, with doing some rehearsal for card tricks and the magic stuff that I do. If there's anyone who doesn't know who I am who's actually listening to this, I am a professional, professional, full-time magician, magic dude, card slinger, card monkey, 
however you want to call it. I entertain people with magic tricks and I tell stories. But that's really the, the baseline of what I do. The art that I try to create through that is far more than just that description. And hopefully, someday I'll get a chance to show you uh, personally. So anyway, July the 17th, 2017, uh, 29 years since I, since I was married. And I find myself uh, starting a new path. But that's a topic for another day when it's a little less painful for me. Let's, uh, I didn't mean to get sidetracked that easily, but, you know, buckle up. That's going to happen um, more often than not uh, during this, this kind of a podcast with me. I put it out to the patrons, to the people that are supporting, supporting me on my Patreon page, which can be found, if you're interested, at uh, patreon.com backslash, backslash magicartist patreon.com backslash magic artist and there's there's stories to be told and there's levels to be uh, leveled to and um, I'm doing this in a semi-professional semi-fun kind of way this is not my main profession I speak for a living I perform for a living and I'm starting to make a little bit of money in writing and I enjoy writing and I enjoy getting these stories out so that's uh that's the nuts and bolts of who I am. Moving forward, I put it out there to the patrons uh, who already support me through the Patreon page that uh, largely the very first part of everything that I record is going to be on their suggestion. Since they are the main supporters, they should get the first voice. That's just my opinion. So I put it out there to them, and I got some interesting responses. The very first one came from quite possibly the oldest friend that I have here, uh, here being in my, in my little world, someone who has actively and casually stuck by me through everything that has gone on in my life. And I, I hope that uh, I have been at least half a good a friend to him as he has been to me in, in some of my darker times. And that's Ted Loring. Ted Loring is a big-hearted artist who plays instruments and entertains children and brings light and light and happiness into into so many lives uh, that I've seen over the years. I, I couldn't begin to count. And uh, he's one of my most trusted friends. He's, he's the, the one person who has never judged me on, on anything that, uh, that came along. He just he's loved me uh, just the, the way that I am. Uh, through all of my mistakes and everything else, the, the whole way through. Ted came up, and uh, his message to me was, as it regards your, pod, your podcast contents, tell us your origin story. What were you doing before magic? How did you discover your gift? Tell us about the early days of magic, that moment when you realized you could make a living doing it. That, sir, is a tall order, and I'm proud to say that you were there on day one when I first picked up this this craft that would become my life. Let me back up a few steps, and we'll start with what was I doing before magic? Well, from the time I was around 15 or 16 years old, a large part of my income, a large part of my, my jobs were in movie theaters. I love movies. I especially love movies that 
that aren't in the main line, the independent filmmakers, the first timers, the the people that really have a heart and put it into their story, small moments of joy. I have a long-standing credo saying thing that I've told my wife and I've told my friends. There's never been a movie that I've watched that I haven't found some small bright part in it that uh, that won me over to it. I have not yet seen a movie that, to me, was completely valueless. I, I, I tend to find messages, whether intended or accidental, uh, in between the frames of the movies that I love and, and even the movies that I don't care for. Now, I cannot like a film and still get something out of it. But when it all meshes and it all gets together just the right way, there's there's really nothing quite like it. And for a long time, for a very long time, I've wanted to be an actor. I was in plays. I was in uh, musicals all the way through my school years and all through college and community theater after I was out of college. But I never, I don't believe I've ever actually been paid to to do a play. I don't think I ever received a, a check or, or any kind of payment for being in a production. I don't believe that's ever happened. But it was something I loved to do. It, it, it gave me my creative outlet. It, it allowed me to try on different characters and try on different people and get up on stage and lie to people. And in lying to them, tell them a story because art is a lie, right? So I did that in my in my spare time, and I worked in movie theaters all the way through. I mean, I was still working when I got when I first got married back in 1988, and even through uh, my first daughter being born, Carlisle, I remember her playing um, in the lobby of one of the the theaters. My wife had come to pick me up from work and brought her in, and she was just a toddler, but she liked to play in the uh, in the lobby there on the carpeting and, and look at the bright colors of the posters and things. The last thing I really remember, um, the last big movie I really remember opening or being a part of was uh, Batman, the first Batman film um, starring Michael Keaton. And uh, and names suddenly escape me, I guess. I've been thinking too hard over things. But the, you know the one I'm talking about, the first, uh, the very first Batman movie with Michael Keaton. Um, and uh, I think I still have a poster from that to this day. But that's where my history was. It was in the make-believe and in the, in, the, in the fashion of that. One thing leading to another, and movie theaters just weren't paying me enough to support my small family. So I uh, moved on from that, and I got a, a job in... Um, what was the name of the place? Storehouse. There was a little furniture place in Eastland Mall, of all places, uh, known as Storehouse. And I got hired on there to uh, to move and deliver furniture. And uh, I was part of the delivery team. Um, things would get, you know, things get sold, and I, and I deliver them to all these houses that, uh, you know, it was, it was remarked to the point of I was delivering furniture I couldn't afford, to houses that I could never hope to live in. But I enjoyed it. I enjoyed meeting the new people, and I enjoyed the exercise, and I enjoyed the 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 ways we just made the days pass, you know. And uh, the job was set up such that I could walk to work. I 
worked in Eastland Mall, and my our first little apartment was uh, was right next door, and I could literally walk uh, straight over there. Um, so that that was that, and that 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 job advanced into being hired on a on a larger scale to a different furniture company, the Mecklenburg Furniture Company, which uh, was was phenomenal. They're just huge, huge place full of. Uh, the good stuff, if you will. And I worked on the delivery team there for about two years. All of that to say that this is how I supported my family, uh, physical labor. I, um, I wasn't, I didn't fit in well with the, uh, with the other delivery types, the other delivery team members. Um, I was always reading. They didn't quite get that. I was in plays. They didn't understand why I was doing that. But it just felt to me that, you know, this was my work and I, you know, this is what you have to do to survive and get by. And then the the stuff that I loved, the stuff that was in my heart to do was what I did in my spare time. Um, it was always, to me, family first and then job and then, you know, hobby. And I lived that way for a number of years. Um, in the uh, in the spring of 1992, let me actually let me not go there. Let me back up one more step before um, before I get to that because this is kind of important too. I was adopted into uh, my wife's church family. She and her family had been going to uh, Central Church of God for a number of years since she was since she was very young. And, of course, when I married into the family, not having a church of my own, I became uh, a part of the central family. And very early on, my father-in-law, Tommy, introduced me to the children's pastor, uh, Bill Mock. Now, Bill was, uh, was and is uh, an amazing storyteller, someone who could take the simplest concept and build a uh, a beautiful, beautiful, lush world around it, and present it to children. That was his biggest focus. Is he loved presenting gospel ideas uh, to children, and he did it beautifully. He was in charge of, of course, in charge of the the children's ministry, and they built. Oh, I'm not going to remember this. I, I should have looked this part up before I got going, but I didn't anticipate backing quite up this far. But it is necessary. Um, he created a small uh, train depot. And boy, I wish right now I could remember it. But my brain sometimes has hidden, uh, has hidden caves in it where I, can't quite, I cannot quite come up with it. Um, I remember what happened later, but, but that very first, man, just can't do it. Sorry. It was, it was, but it was a train depot, and there was... Uh, there were characters, there were heroes and villains, and there was a, a story told in 20 to 30 minutes every single Sunday. They wrote a new um, a new play, a new scenario, and we would basically come in and get the basics of we go from here to here to here, and this is what your character is going to be this week, and this is who you are going to play this week, and we would improvise the main part of the script. There were certain points we had to hit and, and a certain guidepost or, or rather guideline of, of, of where to go and, 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 and how to go. But we would, for the biggest part, we would know our characters and improvise the script. And it was fascinating. I got, uh, 
I got introduced into that, and they welcomed me. And occasionally I would help write scripts, and I would do puppets, and I would play live-action characters. And, I mean, I played bigger than life, and, and uh, I had some experience in it. So it, uh, it was a great time. I think I brought. I think I contributed a lot to the program itself, and uh, given circumstances, apparently I did. So I was involved with that for at least a year and a half, maybe a little bit more, and uh, participated in, in all aspects of it. Ted would open the show. My friend Ted would open the show with songs and and uh, and uh, little mini skits of his own. Uh, called himself Wild Man Ted, and uh, was just a maniac. And the kids loved him. And he would open the show, get the energy up, get the theme set as to what we were going to be specifically talking about. And then he would play incidental music on his keyboard um, for the play itself, for the actual play itself. So that's where we were. That went on for a while. We looked forward to every Sunday some people came and went, but for the large part, we were a very core group, a very solid little family of children's entertainers at Central Church of God. Grand Central Station, that makes sense. Grand Central Station was the name of the, uh, of the depot, was the name of the, uh, the scene, the little town that, uh, that we worked in. Thank you, Brain, for finally opening that up. Um, so... Around the spring of 1992, I got a call from Bill to come to his house to bring Dawn, bring uh, Carlisle, and uh, and Rose. Rose was uh, my second daughter, and at this time she was um, she was very small. She was um, maybe right at almost a, a year and a half. So in that age, so that puts Carlisle at about three, and uh, and Rose at about one. So we went to Bill's house, and it was all the he had gathered all the people from um, Grand Central Station together, including myself and Ted, and uh, his main script writer Bob. And he he told us that there was a family resort nearby that had approached him about running the children's ministry there, and uh, we would be build, we would be building sets, and we would be doing. Uh, puppet shows and live-action comedy shows for family groups, not just children, but whole family groups. This was in the aftermath of Heritage USA. Um, real brief, quick history on this. Heritage USA was run by the PTL Club, or was owned at one point by the PTL Club, the Jim and Tammy Baker. Uh, I'm going to use the word empire, because that's what it was. Um Shortly before this time, there had there was uh, they were pulled apart by scandals and stories, and the ministry came down and and left this big empty resort. Well, the resort was was taken over and purchased by a group of Malaysian businessmen who wanted to maintain the integrity of what the park once was and keep it as a family Christian based hotel lobby. Uh, hotel, uh, spa, uh, resort, uh, and, and, and improve upon that. And they wanted there to be a very large uh, family entertainment group to be a part of it. And that's 
what they wanted Bill to do. And they wanted to hire, he wanted, they wanted him to hire his own team, bring in his own people, and make this something special. Well, Bill wanted the team that he had been working with at Grand Central Station. And most of us uh, signed up. Most of us thought, here's an opportunity, here's a way to go. Um, there were some people that invested in the program uh, to get it up and running. It, it all just kind of, it, it seemed to come together, at least from my perspective, um, very quickly. And uh, and it just seemed like the perfect time. Now, to give you a perspective of what that time was like for me and my little family, um, Bill came to me with a salary of uh, $20,000 a year. And it was such an improvement over what I was making moving furniture that I jumped at the chance. I mean, are you kidding? Um, I get to write scripts. I get to perform. I get to do this thing, build this whole new creation, uh, and bring people joy. And they're going to pay me like 25% more than I was making moving furniture without all the physical labor. Now, 20 grand in 1992 was was really good for me. Uh, it was good for the you know where the economy stood at that time. Uh, it wasn't a bad little salary. Um, I jumped at the chance. Uh, I talked it over with Dawn, and, and we both agreed that this just seemed like the perfect door that was opening up uh, in front of us. And uh, so, beginning in June of 1992, I became a full time employee of. Children's Video Ministries. I'm pretty sure that's right. Children's Video Ministries, um, headed up by Bill Mock. And again, like I said before, an absolute genius and an absolute, uh, an absolute visionary um, at what he wanted to see happen. Um, we uh, Ted also signed up. Ted was, was newly wed at the time, and uh, there was an opportunity there. Uh, they asked him to write original music. They asked me to write scripts. They asked the two of us to combine our resources, combine our talents, and create programs for this this brand new thing. So we moved into the same office together, and we got a state-of-the-art computer, which, um, if you'll look up state-of-the-art computer circa 1992, you'll get the idea. And we would spend our days... Uh, at the beginning of the summer, jamming, writing scripts, coming up with ideas, acting them out in our little office, going over to the venues, uh, hanging speakers, painting sets. It was it was a very very incredible, amazing time in my life. Um, it it was an absolute turning point from the old life to the new one. It, it all happened there. Uh, at the New Heritage USA, my, I can literally say my entire life changed and took off in this direction starting there. We did this through the entire summer and up in through the uh, through most of the fall. The, uh, the business, uh, I, I can't judge from my perspective. All I knew was I was working really hard during the summer and... And it was okay. I didn't. I wasn't at home as much as I wanted to be, but 
this was a building, you know, this was a, a creating. And I felt like as we got closer to the fall, I would be home more often. And that, that actually came true. Bill uh, insisted that we spend time with our families and that we have time off. Um, so that, that was fairly good up through, I'm going to say, uh, September and October. Um, and then at this point, and this is, again, this is from my perspective only. I can't speak for uh, the trouble that everybody else went through. But the, uh, the people that hired us wanted more. They wanted, uh, they wanted ropes courses out in the woods. They wanted uh, hiking trails and haunted trails for the, for the Halloween. And some of the things, some of them I felt fit into the vision, and some of them I felt just didn't. But again, it's just my perspective, and who am I to say? I'm kind of living out a dream at the time. I'm, I'm doing something that I, I, I passionately loved. So we, uh, we had a, uh, several outdoor theaters for the summertime, and that was great. But come the fall, they felt it would be a good idea to have a small theater inside, inside the resort. And um, I don't recall that working as well. Uh, a big problem was the traffic and getting people... Uh, one, out to the resort, and two, uh, while they're there, to entice them to come and actually watch the plays and the musicals that we put together. Um, So to that end, in one of the plays that we wrote, there was, uh, we wrote a a street hustler, a scam artist, somebody who would um, play you at the shell game and, and cheat you from your money and you know, he, it was a villain, basically. It was written as a, as a villain, a hustler, a, um, a not-so-nice guy who, of course, at the end has a change of heart and comes to Jesus because that's how they all end, um, uh, which, is, which is fine. It's, you, you write for the venue, right? Um, so to, to play this character, um, I decided to learn a couple of card tricks. I decided that I'll go visit. There's a local magic shop up in Charlotte, and I will go and uh, get a book or two or maybe learn a, a trick or two, and uh, we'll apply that into the act, and, you know, it'll look like a real magician. So Ted and I took an afternoon, and we drove up to Charlotte to Rock's Magic Shop. I had never in my life before stepped foot inside of a magic shop. Um... And uh, it was fascinating. There were a lot more books than I thought there would be. There was a video section. Uh, now, we're talking VHS here. This is 92. Um, VHS tapes of classic magicians, people I had never even heard of. People like Di Vernon, Charlie Miller. Um, gosh, who caught my eye? Daryl, Michael Amar. The names that were completely foreign to me. I'd never heard of any of them. And I could not tell you who was working at the time, but we talked to some people behind the counter, told them what we were what we were looking for, and they gave us three or four suggestions as to what might work for a small stage or for being up close. I remember sponge balls, of course. Um, I want to say the hot rod was was like the, one of the very first things. That we got, although it wasn't quite appropriate for the stage, I was just fascinated with the concept. Um, a trick deck or two, if I remember correctly, and then um, that was all purchased um, 
by the company, by the uh, by the people we were working for, just some simple tricks. And we had a small expense account to do that with. But then in looking through the books, I found um, Eugene Berger's The uh, the Art of Close-Up Magic and uh, kind of kind of thumbed through it, kind of looked through it and bought that for myself, bought that with my own money because just the, the way he spoke and the way he wrote uh, fascinated me because I didn't know there was quite that much depth uh, to a performing magician. Go figure, right? Um, and I read that cover to cover the first night I got it, and then several days on end went back and read passages and read through the whole thing again and was just uh, amazed by what I had been missing or what I hadn't seen. It was just it was a fascinating new world. And in the meantime, I learned the hot rod. I learned the uh, the trick decks, and I uh, applied it to the stage act. And to be perfectly honest, I cannot tell you how it went over. Um, the crowds were very small, sometimes as few as two or three people at best. And um, I got the idea to take this, uh, and uh, to be brutally honest, I, I want to think that maybe it was Ted that originally had the idea himself and, and presented it to me. But um, I got the idea from somewhere to move my little hustler table out into the uh, the main part of the uh, of the resort in the, into the hotel and uh, entertain people as they went by and in in the course of doing that sell the show let them know there was a show going on it's going to be in this small theater over here these are the times it's going to be on there'll be magic like this there will be you know there'll be music and et cetera and et cetera and um, because of the lack of traffic it it worked less than well. But I enjoyed doing it. I, I liked applying some of the principles that I read about in Eugene Berger's book to actually meeting real people and and performing for them. It was it was a, an amazing time. Okay, so that's the picture of where we were. Uh, the job went away suddenly. Literally, um, it became a problem in getting paid. Um, I'm not going to delve into too much of that because a lot of it's none of my business. But from my perspective, it seemed that Bill was having a hard time collecting paychecks from his bosses to give to us. And for some, that was okay. For some, it was just a part-time thing. But for like Ted and myself, we were trying to support our families. And the paychecks coming in a week late or two weeks late could be devastating. Uh, for us, and this was all happening. Uh, all of this started happening around the latter part of November and early part of December of '92. And uh, Ted made the decision that he couldn't continue on. He couldn't wait to be paid. He couldn't, you know, do what he what he was trying to do. So, uh, very smart on his part, he found something else, and he went off to pursue a different job. I was a little more hard-headed and stubborn and not wanting to give up on this dream quite so easily. But about two weeks before Christmas, or maybe it was even a week before Christmas, uh, we came in and everything was locked. Everything was shut down. The whole project was uh, was pulled. Everything was, I mean, the whole resort shut down. They, they uh, The investors and the businessmen that had put time and energy and money into it 
finally decided that it was a lost cause, I guess, and uh, gave up and went home. I don't remember if I ever got the last paycheck from that. And, uh, of course, I wasn't the only one. Uh, everybody that was working there for us did that. Now, we had um, we had built stages. We had built a, a, a lighthouse, like a, a two-and-a-half-story lighthouse uh, over by the water. We had uh, installed sound systems. We had put heart and soul and everything in this for almost six months. And... Uh, it abruptly vanished, and I went home um, to try to figure out a plan of action or where I could go or who I needed to call to uh, to get a you know go back to work, get a get a, a normal quote normal job, so I could could, could uh, support the family. And uh, we had a long talk, and there was a lot of emotion in it. Um, and she basically told me that if I didn't want to quit, if I didn't want to give this up, I needed to find a way to take the talent that I had and, and make something out of it. You know, whether it's acting, whether it's writing, whether it's, you know, sticking by the children's video ministry because they were getting into uh, designing and building sets for you know, other churches, and, and they, they found their own path and went along that way. And maybe I could tag along with them, or maybe I could try to cut my own path. Well, after thinking about it for a very long time and praying about it for a very long time and not getting really any answers, um, I just, it just decided, I said, well, while I'm looking, while I'm struggling, while I'm, I'm waiting for this last paycheck to come in, I think I know a way that I could make a few dollars. So I took my little table and I took a deck of cards and a, uh, I think a set of cups or, and I went up, uh, went uptown Charlotte to perform on the street for real, to play the character that I had created um, for the ministry, but on the street with, with my actual hat out um, to uh, to try to earn some money, one of the uh, I'm going to back up a half a step. At some point in the uh, in the uh, the fall, uh, someone gave me uh, a videotape of Doc Eason performing at the legendary Tower Bar in uh, in Aspen or Snowmass, sorry, Colorado, um, and watching his style and watching the way he uh, interacted with people and watching how happy he obviously was doing what he was doing uh, inspired me further to play it that way, to play it with my own personality, with my own, uh, you know, sometimes upbeat, sometimes sarcastic persona, you know, be who you are and um, and let the, 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 the effects come from you. That's That's really where it started off. I had really, really good teachers that I never met at the very beginning. So I, I was very lucky. Um, so I took my little table uptown Charlotte and I set up on a corner opposite of a hot dog vendor. Um, and I watched the traffic. I watched the foot traffic to see where the busiest places were and, and, you know, get between like a hotel and a restaurant and, 
as people are walking back and forth, try to stop them. Try to stop them for 10, 20, 30 seconds to watch a show. And hopefully if I could stop them for that long, I could keep them for two or three minutes as much as five if I possibly could and show them something amazing, tell them a funny story, make them laugh, and maybe they would put a dollar in my little hat. The very first night I went up, it was late in the afternoon, I pulled my courage together and it was it was literally January 1st of, uh, of 1993 when I made this decision and uh, I went to go do it. And I stayed up there for a good four hours, three to four hours up there trying to learn how to stop people, trying to get people interested, trying to show tricks to people as they went by, anything I could think of, telling jokes as they walked by, hoping they would stop. And a few of them did stop, and a few of them did laugh, and I struggled, and I pushed, and I struggled some more, and at uh, after four hours, I had $17 in, in my hat, and I was overjoyed. I, it was It was amazing. It was incredible. People gave me money because I made them laugh, because I showed them a couple of tricks. And on the way home, I bought diapers, and I bought dinner, and I bought I brought food home. And I basically said, we're going to make it. I can do this thing. Um, I'm not great at it right now. Uh, I rely too much on, on you know, the, the, the gimmicks and the tricks themselves. I want to write my own material. I want to do my own thing. I want to be original. And at the same time, I want to be able to entertain people and tell them stories and make them laugh. So I did that. And at some point, and I, I, honest to God, I could not tell you, I know there were days that I went out every single day for several hours just to bring a little money home. Uh, it was enough to just about cover the rent. Um, Dawn was working, and, and honestly, right now, I can't tell you where she was working, but she was helping. Um her parents watched the children while we were working, or she would work during the day, and I would work during the night, and we to do this thing. But shortly after working on the street, it, it really wasn't that long, uh, someone saw me uh, working and thought it would be a beautiful idea for me to work in their bar and their restaurant. And they gave me a card, and I made a phone call, and within just a couple of days... I started working at a small Mexican restaurant on Monroe Road called El Gringo's. And El Gringo didn't pay a lot. I, I don't, honest to goodness, I don't remember what they paid me, but I'm, I'm fairly certain it was in the vicinity of 30 to 40 bucks a night for like working the full night, working at the bar, working at the tables. But they would feed us. Uh, any night that we wanted, we could come in and they would give us food. And, and, and we would, uh, I, I am skipping over an, an awful lot of stuff. There were a lot of things that went on between that. But we'll cover that in future episodes um, when, when other questions come up. But this is basically how we got started. Um, I was doing the occasional show for a church or for a, a civic group or a private party. I dabbled in doing children's magic and it just didn't fit me. 
But I was out there and I was working and I was doing as much as I could to work and I was bringing money home and I was paying my bills. And in in a, in a, one night at um, at El Gringo's, one one of Ted's questions is. Um, that moment when you realized you could make a living doing it. I saw Doc Eason doing the card under glass, and I watched him do it again and again and again and again. And uh, I asked at the magic shop, you know, was that published? Was that something that was for sale? Was that a thing? And I was directed to the Magic of Matt Shulian uh, book, on a, a legendary bar uh, slash restaurant magician called Matt Shulian, who's uh, who did a lot of work with cards, had his own take of um, card under glass, and of course, uh, man, names are going to escape me again, but several other people who had published work on it. And uh, I was at Al Gringo's one night, and I made a card appear under somebody's glass on their table. And they sat back in their chair, and their eyes bugged out, and their jaw dropped. And they reached in their pocket, and they threw a $20 bill in the middle of the table and said, I'll give you another one if you can do that again without me catching you. And I did it again without them catching me. And it was in that moment that I realized what I was doing had value. Um, I was giving them, showing them something they just plain old didn't see every day, and that I had a knack in my hands and in my speech and the way that I talk and the attitude that I bring to really entertain people, to be a genuine showman. I had been in rehearsals as an actor for most of my life to become a magician in, in my, uh, when I turned 26, 27 years old. I, uh, I, uh, I had apparently been training my entire life for this career. And a lot of magicians, most magicians out there will tell you they started eight, nine, ten years old doing their thing. I had never touched magic or, or magic props or looked into becoming a magician ever, except for this this play that I wrote and this character that I created. But my hands knew what to do. I, I learned the slights fairly quickly. And at the beginning when it was sloppy and not up to par and not, you know, my technique wasn't everything that it should be. At that time, my personality and my acting chops were big enough to cover the, uh, the uh, sloppy handling, but I kept working so that, you know, so that the handling uh, would get better. But I, I went from, uh, from working one restaurant to eventually working six nights a week um, and, you know, seven different venues in that I would work like Saturday lunch and then Saturday night, and I fed my people. But that's where it got started, and the living that I that I got out of it. I mean, coming into the restaurants, coming into the bars, meeting people on the street that uh, that threw parties, that threw meetings, that did trade shows, and they liked what I had to offer. And with very little marketing, there was no social media at the time. Uh, so I would mail out, you know, physical packages, but not even an awful lot. Just being in front of people and presenting them with quality was enough to uh, to garner me a living, 
to do the private shows, and, and, it, and it built a career just in being in the right place at the right time in front of the right people and being prepared to be there. Uh, the times that I wasn't on the street or in a restaurant performing, I was reading and I was practicing and I was doing all of that and setting aside time to be a, a father and a husband. Um, and that led to uh, that led to a whole bunch of other things that I think we'll get into another time. But that's the beginning. That's where I started. I came out of a theatrical background um, and just struggling for a living to doing card tricks for people and making them happy and and, uh, and changing lives. Because I, I had the gift in my hands the whole time, it just took me a while to be prepared and be ready and and uh, be studied up enough to where it presented itself to me. That's where it got started. Um, thanks, Ted, for the question. That, that actually went a bit longer than I, I thought it might, but that's okay. Uh, I don't think we have a time limit on this. I'm going to finish up uh, the other questions, too. Um, so next question is um, Nathan Bennett. Funniest card trick anyone has ever performed for you personally and why? <clears throat> That's kind of easy. Um, <laughs> I had never met Bill Malone. I, I did not know Bill Malone. I had, uh, uh, at the point when we first met at a magic convention, um, I'd never heard of him. Oh, by the way, yeah, there are magic conventions. Bunches and groups of magicians get together and exchange ideas and watch each other perform and watch the big names uh, that they hire to come in and lecture and and perform. And, and, and we have a, uh, a big, nerdy, geeky weekend uh, doing card tricks for each other and, uh, and our very patient spouses. So at the, I, I want to say, and I, I could be completely wrong about this, but I believe I met Bill at uh, the Winter Carnival of Magic, which at the time was happening in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. And uh, here's this unassuming guy, um, you know, not not a flashy Lance Burton or David Copperfield or, or, or whatever, um, sat down at the table with me and just kind of we talked for a little bit and he asked what kind of magic I did and it was just genuinely interested in who I was. And someone came up and invited him to show me something, show, show, show Mr. Hannibal uh, what you do. And... I cannot tell you the effects he did, but I know that for the next 10 minutes or so, I couldn't breathe. His asides and his skill and his ability with, with telling stories and, and, and engaging his audience, I, I've never seen his equal in that particular venue and in in the way he does that. He had me and, and my wife just rolling. It, it was uh, the funniest most amazing thing all at the same time that I had ever seen in my life. And um, you could tell that he was very, very skillful, but he didn't he didn't lord that over us. You know what I mean? He wasn't, hey, look how good I really am. Look how look at the slights I can do. No, he he would tell joke after joke and observation after it, it was it was a beautiful thing. Uh, so I can't tell you the specific card trick. But if you look up Bill Malone on YouTube or you look up what he does, you're never going to get the the personal touch because seeing him live is 10 times, 100 times better than seeing him on tape. But you get the idea of his humor. Um, Bill Malone was a very big influence 
in my early days in steering me towards you can you can do a lot personality wise everything from laughter to pathos to rage whatever your art is you can put that into it and 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 uh, and uh, make it yours and Bill Malone is one of a kind so thanks Nathan uh, that that's kind of my answer I can't give you a specific card trick but Bill Malone with a deck of cards in his hand is one of the funniest things uh, in magic I've ever seen in my life. Uh, Highly recommended. This one's going to be a little tougher. Um, Rich, uh, I might be saying this wrong, Rich Coulter writes, I love to hear your thoughts on balance of work versus family. Seems you went through some rough times that ended in your divorce. How would you do things differently in hindsight? Rich, that's a tough question, man. Um, I'm going to tackle it. And I'm going to be, as I have promised time and time again, I'm going to be blunt and brutally honest uh, in everything here. Totally blunt. You're going to get the truth from me. In the late 90s, I had graduated up through different kinds of restaurants, different kinds of bars and grills, and I had started to make a dent in comedy clubs. Comedy clubs were still viable, still a happening, kind of a trendy kind of a thing. I did a lot of comedy nights in country clubs. I did a lot of traveling um, up and down the East Coast, going to different comedy clubs, comedy venues, hotels that had comedy nights. And I had the opportunity to stand on the stage with some very funny people. Um I landed a job in Charlotte uh, for a brief period of time being a strong middle act for the Comedy Zone. There would be a, an MC sometimes, uh, you know, more times actually than I'm, that I'm saying right now. Most of the times I would be an MC, which is to say I would do a short set myself, and then I would bring up the other acts, usually two other acts, middle and, and a headliner. Uh, learned a lot, man. Learned a lot doing that. Learned a lot about how to set up an audience, how to engage them, just just being up there raw in front of people. Well, I I did a lot of comedy clubs, and I was away from home a lot. And by this time, we had four kids. Along the way, we picked up uh, Grace, my youngest daughter, and Brayden, my son. And uh, so I started working harder and and being more ambitious and, and going out for the things that I knew I had to do to pay the bills with my little skill, you know. So a lot of restaurants, a lot of um, a lot of uh, the comedy clubs, and then being away from home and, and so on and so on, and trying to balance those things, you know, as well as trying to be at home and be a dad and a, and a, and a husband. Uh, I did 10 days... Maybe it may have stretched to two weeks. I'm, I'm, I'm unclear at this time. I could look it up, but it's been quite a long time. I did, let's call it 10 days in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. Now, those 10 days were um, December the, uh, the 23rd through like January, January 3rd um, at a Mickey's No Name Cafe and Comedy Club in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. It was a dream job. Uh, we were put up in a very, very fine 
hacienda with open open walls and a and a, a pool, you know, private residence, kind of out in the middle of the jungle, in a gated community. And when I tell you it was a gated community, it was gated with guards uh, holding Uzis. This was a gated house community. You know what I mean? But we had uh, we had cooks that would make us uh, breakfast and lunch. Uh, we could go to Mickey's. Mickey's No Name Cafe, and I have no idea if it's still there, was like a rib burger joint right in the middle of the strip. Uh, it was the uh, the Mexican home of the Chicago Cubs. Um, I remember that part. Uh, there was a restaurant downstairs. Um, very much in the... In the rustic style, a lot of lot of uh, wood and you know, uh, kind of kind of like a if you've ever been to a Hooters, kind of that style, kind of just you know nothing fancy, just wooden tables and and then upstairs he had fashioned a, a comedy club. Uh, some nights there would be live music up there, but but he wanted an ongoing um, comedy you know thing going on. So I was hired for ten days to open for Margaret Smith. Uh, Margaret Smith was a, a fantastic comedian, uh, very friendly, very loving uh, woman who, who encouraged you know me uh, as a, as a young up and comer. She was she was always she offered tips, she offered advice, and um, well, the long and short of it is, I spent a good ten days to two weeks in Puerto Vallarta in paradise um, and and making a nice living and doing magic tricks for people, and then. When my shift was over, going out on the strip and watching the, the street performers and the, and the painters and the dancers and the jugglers. And I did a few card tricks on my own, and the tourists gave me money. It was amazing. But in the process of that job, I missed Grace's birthday. I missed Christmas. I missed New Year's. And I missed Rose's birthday. All in that that little span of time that I was gone, I missed two birthdays and two pretty major holidays. And on the plane ride back, I was I was chagrined. I was mortified. I I, I, I had done nothing wrong. I was I was earning money and I was, you know, performing. But I. I felt like I had really, really missed something important with my family. And it was at that point that I started pulling back from comedy clubs and, and, and talking to the family and, and going over it with Dawn. It was like, you know, I, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to be on the road and miss everything that's happening at home. And so I made the decision, and, and she backed me up on it, that uh, I was just going to stop. I wouldn't do comedy clubs anymore. I would focus my attention, especially while the kids were young, on doing restaurants, trying to get, in, trying to break into more corporate work in the Charlotte area, so that I wasn't gone all the time. And I have to, I believe, in looking back and looking at how things were, and looking, remembering my kids' faces. You know, as I'm leaving before Christmas and actually finding uh, notes and pictures and things they made for me while I was away, they were all very supportive, but they were very sad that I wasn't there. And uh, I, I promised myself that I wouldn't miss uh, 
another Christmas and that I would miss as few birthdays as I possibly could and 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 that I would, you know, in times that I had to miss something like that, that I would do my very best to make it up to them way beforehand and way after. And, and, and in some ways I succeeded and in some ways I failed because this is where it gets tough. And uh, if you don't do what I do, if, you, if you're not, whatever you have, whatever gift you have, and it comes from your heart, there's always a price. You, you are neglecting something. You are, you, you have to make a choice between some of the important things in your life sometimes. Acting, storytelling, magic, performance is such a part of me that it's like breathing. And asking me to give it up or asking me to not do it anymore or to focus my energy somewhere else would be literally like asking me to stop breathing. I uh, Perhaps my priorities are screwed up. Perhaps I don't have, I, I don't, I don't adhere to the standard, you know, thing. I believe in family and I love my family. I love my kids. I love my wife. I, uh, I did for, for 27 years and there were, you know, there were good times and there were bad times. There were some really bad times and some of it was my fault. A great deal of it was my fault in the focusing on how to improve my act, how to connect with people more deeply, how to be better, improve, be better than myself. I was never, I never liked the concept of trying to compete against other artists or be better than another artist. I'm different and different is good enough to, uh, you know, to distinguish yourself from a, from other artists in your field, I, I wanted to be better than myself. I wanted to do this show better than I had ever done it, and I wanted to do the next show better than this one. Somehow, in some way, I wanted to improve. In the latter part of uh, of what went wrong, there were. Rumors, there was gossip, and part of my pride in being Hannibal the Magician blinded me to the trouble that I was in. I, 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 I let pride keep me from doing the right things in some, in some ways, and I changed, she changed. The kids grew up, um, went their own ways, and I really have thought about this a very long time and really hard about it, and, and I really can't, I can't lay the fault at one person's feet. Um, I'm not going to sit here and blame her. I will never, you'll never ever hear me bash her in anything that happened. Um, from her perspective, she did exactly what she needed to do, and I respect her for that. The, the, the second part of your question is I, balance of work versus family. I, for right or wrong, I put 
my art, my performance, my who I am, Hannibal the Magician, I put that ahead of my family. Not by much, but some. And as children get older, as they as they get into their teen years and you're there for them for their teen years and their formative years and everything else, there comes a time they let go and move on to their own lives. And while I love and respect and care for my children, there comes a point when I am no longer responsible for my children. I'll be there for them. I will do my utmost to always be there for them as their father and as the the person who loves them, one of the people who loves them the most. But their lives are their lives, and my life is my life, and my life is performing, is being on stage, is giving every ounce of my sometimes broken heart to those people who gave me their time and their attention to see what I had to do. And in my prideful, cracked mind, I made the choice to perform and to be this, this, this person here. I changed, she changed, life changed, and we were apart. There's a lot of other personal stuff that's in there, and maybe someday I'll go over it, and maybe someday I won't. Both of us got hurt. Both of us at one point thought we were the right one. And there comes a choice where sometimes you go, you know, I can be right or I can be here, you know. Um, I'll explore that some other time. There's a lot lot of that there anyway. To answer your question, how would you do things differently now in hindsight? Rich, here's the truth, man. I wouldn't do anything differently. I lived my life. I put my feet on the stages they were supposed to be on. My kids grew up, turned 21, moved on to their own lives, their own talents, their own things, and they are making their own lives. And it's none of my business right now. I made my choices, and maybe they weren't all correct, but they were all me. So what would I do different in hindsight? Probably not a damn thing. Living my life the way I do and, and doing, believing in the way I believe in, I have to believe that one way or another I would end up exactly where I'm at right now. I learned a lot from the pain. I learned a lot from the heartbreak. I learned a lot from my own stupid mistakes. If I had not made those stupid mistakes, yeah, things might be different. But this is the way they are and they're right. They are right for me. They're right for her. And, and we move on from here. I believe that there is, a, the, the, you know, we held it together and we had fun. We, had, we were tight. Anybody, you know, anybody that knew us will tell you what a tight family we were, how fiercely we stuck together and, and did things for each other. And, um, you know, that, that lasted a long time. It lasted into my children's adulthood. They were brought up well. They were brought up right. They were brought up with love. What else could I do? I love my kids, love my wife, and I showed them in the best way that I could. 
Maybe I wasn't great at it. Maybe I failed miserably at some points. Maybe I failed. I definitely failed miserably at some points. But the thing that, that I am, the core of who I am, is up on that stage, and I'm good at it. And I meant, I am meant to be there and to do it. So no, I wouldn't do anything differently. So, how's that for drama, huh? Um, thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in. I, I'm going to make, I made the assumption that there was somebody who would actually listen. And I'm going to make the even deeper assumption now that there's one or two of you that stuck with me through this, uh, all the way to this point. Um, this'll, uh, this'll be a weekly thing. My goal is to have it happen every Tuesday, uh, for the patrons and then to release it, uh, two or three days later to iTunes and to the, the general public. But you guys will always get the first shot at everything that I put out. Speaking of which, there are new goals on the Patreon page. Um, the very next one I have, I'm currently sitting at 21, sorry, I beg your pardon. 27 uh, patrons for my page. And I thank each and every one of you. You are all making a difference. You're all letting me know that you care, that you got my back, that you are uh, you support what I do and what I say and the people that I touch. Thank you for that. You, you have no idea of what your support means to me. The, first ne- the next goal I have is going to be for 50 patrons. Um, I have just completed, yes, ma'am, I did, completed uh, my book, my first book. It's not a magic book. It is a book of stories from the road. It is a book of internal philosophy of things I've learned being a magician that applies to a whole range of people outside of magic. There are no tricks in it. Um, I'm not teaching tricks. I am basically opening my heart uh, and recalling some stories from... Uh, from the past, from me being out on the road, uh, stories that may trigger uh, new discussions here, I hope, and we'll go from there. Uh, anyway, that's that is uh, almost it is completed. I'm waiting for the forward to come back to me. Um, then, of course, all the the making the cover and all the things you have to do. Uh, I will be self publishing it um, on several different formats, both in uh, uh, physical format as well as uh, Kindle. PDF, ebook, some other things like that. And uh, my goal also is to make it an audible book. So my next goal is for 50 patrons. When I hit 50 patrons on Patreon, uh, all of you, all 50, whatever, the first 50 patrons will receive a free copy um, of the book on PDF form. I will send you a digital copy. It'll have the cover. It'll have all the contents just like you would have you know, on an e-reader, just like you'd have a physical copy, but I will send you each and all, every one of you a, uh, a PDF copy of the book that I wrote. Uh, like, this, uh, like this podcast, it's entitled Across the Table. Um, all the lessons I've learned, uh, most of the magic I've performed for people, the life decisions that I've made have been sitting across the table from someone I care about. Wife, friend, audience I've learned and I've taught across a table. So, hence the name of of this podcast as well as the first book. So, we get to 50, you all get uh, a PDF copy of the book that I wrote. uh, And my heart and soul are burned into it. 
at 100 patrons, I am going to uh, release a video of a brand new show, uh, the show that I am currently writing. This show is going to be up to my own standards of storytelling and performance magic. Uh, I set a goal for myself to create an entirely new show with entirely new effects that I have never performed on stage before. Um, once I get it written, rehearsed, and uh, done, I will be uh, recording it on video, and uh, it'll be released in some form, whether by electronics or via DVD. It depends on, on whatever it is. Uh, probably a shortened show between 20 and 30 minutes, something really intense, uh, something very magical, and something uh, uh, very, very personal. Uh, I'll release it in some form, but uh, I will release it to the patrons first. It will be available. Um, I don't know exactly which form. Uh, it'll be something easy, something you'll be able to either download or, or stream uh, directly to your computer or, or whatever device. Um, I'll work out those details as we go along. But the first 100 patrons, I will release that, and it will be exclusively yours uh, for at least one month before I release it to the public uh, or anything else. Uh, so that's that's the, the, the secondary goal, or the next goal down the line. Um, what you're doing is you're, you're investing in me, and you're giving me the opportunity to be more creative, to write more stories, to create more magic that I will in turn uh, bring back to you and, uh, and continue in this, uh, this lifestyle, this fashion that I, um, I have carved out for myself, this, this gift that was put into my hands to do, you are making it somewhat easier for me to do it. Um, in addition to the, uh, the, uh, the lawyer bills and, the, and the, the, the cost of divorce, which I know you know is not, uh, not inexpensive, and all those other things I've got uh, to cover, the responsibilities that I have to cover as well. Um, my main source of income is always going to be performing. I will always have my feet on my stage. I promise you this. Uh, however, I need to make that happen. Um, but this allows me to stretch out creatively and bring you uh, a little closer. And again, I'm going to thank you for, for doing that. Um, upcoming shows... I should have had my calendar up and, and running for this. The very first one, of course, is going to be August the 7th. Um, uh, I'm going to say his name wrong. Chris Curitan is going to be my opening act, and he is spectacular. Uh, music dude, uh, heartfelt, beautiful, beautiful music. That's going to be August the 7th, the very first Monday in August, at Petra's in Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, following that, later in August, on August the 22nd, there will be a dinner theater at uh, Aux en Provence. Just watch my uh, watch my webpage for that, uh, for directions and everything else. That's also in Charlotte on Providence Road, near one of the theaters I used to work in. And then it looks like we're all, I'm going to be doing uh, Matthews Alive in Matthews, North Carolina, on September the 2nd. And then jumping ahead, there'll be festival in the park later in September. I will be appearing at the Genie Convention in October. Um, and let me find it. November, looks like November, the, the, the last weekend in November, the Thanksgiving weekend in November, I will be up in Pennsylvania. And I'll tell you more about that as that details come in. But for right now, the, the next couple of shows are in August and they are in Charlotte. 
Um, everything else, of course, is private or, or corporate functions and so on and so on. But I hope to see you out there for those. Check out my webpage, themagicartist.com. Check out my Patreon page. Uh, you, those of you who are listening first have already done so. Uh, Patreon.com backslash Magic Artist. Twitter, Magic Artist. Instagram, Magic Artist. Find me on Facebook, Unique Inspirational Theater. There are links on the website that tell you all of that stuff as well. That's one. Got the first one down. Thanks for listening. Uh, I hope it was um, uh, engaging. I hope it was interesting. I absolutely want your feedback. Um, So leave me a note, leave me a message, send me a private message. Uh, whatever you'd like to do. If you, if, you, if you thought it stunk, tell me that. I, I need to know uh, one way or the other. I'm going to put my heart and soul into this like I do in, in all these things. And uh, I absolutely could not possibly do it without you. Uh, it's a very visual performance kind of an act, both in the podcast and in my feet on the stage. And I, I could not do this without you out there listening, out there wanting to hear more. You've given me, you are giving me an exceptional life, and I'm doing my best to share it with you. Thanks for listening. Um, I'll see you in one week. This is Hannibal, and I sincerely hope that there is love where you are. <laughs>